Welcome to the Assurology Show, a growth hacker's guide to human capital management with your host, Mike Vinoy. Each week, we bring you experts in human resources, employment law, accounting, benefits planning, and more to build productive organizations. You'll gain practical guidance for your business. You'll be alerted to the latest news and megatrends that impact small and mid-sized companies. We'll give you the hands-on information you need to stay compliant with ever-changing employment laws, the strategies you need to win the war for talent, and much more. So you can focus on what you do best, growing your business. Enjoy the show. Rising Together, how we can bridge divides and create a more inclusive workplace. Hi, I'm Mike Vinoy, Vice President of Marketing at Assure, and this is such a cool topic and, and an even better guest today. You know, we, we talk on this show re- uh, every week about, you know, the war for talent is no longer some, you know, Fortune 500 concept. Uh, the war for talent has hit Main Street, and uh, employers, small and mid-sized companies, are struggling to fill jobs, regardless of whether we're in a recession, approaching recession, not a recession. The fact is there are more openings than there are uh, workers today. And if you're not tapping into every single uh, uh, talent pool uh, uh, in, 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 you know, we recorded a webinar uh, about two weeks ago on unconscious bias. If you're letting your systems, your processes, your unconscious bias uh, prevent you from tapping into new pools of talent, you're missing a gigantic opportunity. So uh, an amazing guest today. So Sally Helgeson, uh, she's cited in Forbes as the world's premier expert on women's leadership. Uh, she's an internationally best-selling uh, author, speaker, leadership coach, honored by the Thinkers 50 Hall of Fame. Her most recent book, How Women Rise, co-authored with Marshall Goldsmith, many of you know his work, uh, examines the behaviors most likely to get in the way of successful women. And rights have been sold in over 22 languages. Previous books include The Female Advantage, Women's Way of Leadership, hailed as the classic in its field and continuously in print since 1990. The Female Vision, Women's Real Power at Work, which explores how women's strategic insights can strengthen their careers. The Web of Inclusion, a new architecture for building great organizations, was cited in Wall Street Journal as one of the best books on leadership of all time. And it is credited with bringing the language of inclusion into business. Sally, it's a real privilege to talk to you today. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Mike. It's wonderful to be here. So um, you're obviously an expert on uh, women's leadership. As, I, as I've been consuming your content, reading your books, um, you really focus on the individual. And what is it that we as individuals can do? Men, women, uh, it doesn't matter. What can we do? Uh, to, to get to the next level? How do we rise as individuals in our career? I, I really want to talk uh, take today's conversation from the employer's perspective, right? So uh, uh, as we've had conversations on this show in the past about uh, unconscious bias, uh, it, 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 we're not accusing employers of uh, uh, you know being racist or any of the other political stereotypes that kind of sometimes get associated with a, a DEI, uh, we're, we're talking about just the biases we have about maybe the high school we went to, maybe the college we went to, the people that we just uh, uh, hang out with and, and uh, the parents that are uh, from our kids' sports teams. We have these biases that we bring to the workplace as employers 
Can you speak into how that impacts our ability to see talent that doesn't necessarily fit into our, our manifold of the world? Certainly. I'm glad to do that. And uh, it's, it's really good to be on the show and have, uh, have this question put to me. Uh, because I think that it's very helpful uh, for employers to think in terms of what unconscious biases they may have, because these biases may help them to miss some significant pools of talent. And even if they don't miss those pools of talent, they may fail to fully engage the talent they have because of unconscious assumptions. I prefer to call them unconscious assumptions because it's a, a less accusatory uh, way of framing it than unconscious bias. However, I appreciate um, that. a lot of the diversity and inclusion work has focused on identifying unconscious assumptions, but then it leaves you kind of now what? So I think of unconscious bias training, exactly. which a lot of big companies do as sort of aha moment. Now what? What do you do once you realize, you know, okay, I was assuming that somebody who had gone to that college or university wouldn't necessarily fit into our culture. Okay, I was assuming that as a woman, this individual I hired may not be the one I want to send in on a sales call with some of the toughest guys I know. Okay, I was assuming that this a Latino employee who is from a very different background would be good at at doing retail, but might struggle in the technology thing. So once we realize that we have had these biases, I don't think that the whole paradigm gives us much to do about it. It's, it's all internal. And guess what? People aren't that affected by what we're thinking. They're affected by how we speak and what we do. So in, and I've been working with this, I've been working right. in this field, not just women's leadership, but inclusive leadership for 35 years. And what I find is people want a kind of roadmap of what to do. They are getting it. If they didn't get it before the pandemic caused the kind of labor shortage that it did, and the willingness among people to say, okay, I've had enough with this job. I don't feel valued. I don't feel seen. I don't feel appreciated. I know there's a talent, there's a war for talent, and I'm going to take my talent someplace else. So if people didn't get that message, employers didn't get that message before the pandemic, um, they're really getting it now, and they recognize, I think, that they have to do something about this. I love the way you describe that, Sally. I mean, and I love even the way you corrected about changing from bias. I feel like so much of the language, as well-intentioned as it is in this area, people feel like it's finger-wagging, like something's wrong with you or your biases, you're doing things wrong. And even if we do, it's easy to take someone through an exercise and say, okay, yeah, we all have biases, whether it doesn't have to be uh, against, uh, it doesn't have to be gender-based or people of color. It's just height, hair, hairstyles, uh, beauty. <laughs> I mean, 
uh, age. We, we all have have these, but just pointing them out isn't so helpful. So in, in, in your books, you talk a lot about the practical advice that women can take, how to, how to rise above as individuals. What is your advice for employers? How, how, how do, what's the, forget bias, what are the practical things that they can do to tap in to bigger pools of talent? And I think the outcome, it ends up being more diversity and more inclusion. Exactly. That's exactly right. So I, I agree. I think the language of unconscious bias, however we frame it, is implicitly finger wagging. And guess what? Every single one of us has biases. We don't like someone who's wearing tattoos. We make these assumptions. I mean, we all see that. We all feel that. Uh, What really matters is the kind of behaviors that you manifest. Inclusive behaviors. That is the key. So in, in the new book that I've written, Rising Together, which was very much in response to a question I got from a small employer. I was doing a program in Las Vegas and uh, at the end of 2019, and it was at the Construction Super Conference, which is all kinds of construction businesses from all around the country. And uh, I was doing a women's leadership segment. Uh, so I went into my segment. It was a breakout. You know, it's a huge conference at thousands of people. So I went into my breakout yeah. expecting I'd have probably 150 women who were in the construction industry who were feeling that they did not really, um, you know, that they weren't recognized. That's the main thing, recognition. Uh, and who were, you know, unhappy about it and wanted to, to know how they could better manifest what their skills were. That's what I thought I was going to get. I showed up at my breakout. There were about 300 people there and it was about 65% men. And I was absolutely floored. I recognized that what I was going to talk about was, was not that, uh, you know, germane to the audience I had. So what I did was I said, you know, why are you here? What, what, what caused you at the construction super conference to come to a segment about women's leadership? And, uh, two things came out. First of all, one guy stood up, uh, one project manager and he said, you know, we find, we, and this is pre pandemic, of course, uh, uh, 2019. He said, the pool of talent that we have to draw from is very and increasingly diverse. And this is not going to change. We understand we, we are, we seem to do a very bad job with women. We have a hard time hiring them. And when we hire them, they often leave. Uh, we need to get better at that or we're going to go out of business. And then one executive stood up and asked me the question that kind of changed my life. He said, listen, We hope you are not going to, in response to this question, talk about why we need to get better at engaging women. We understand the whys, but we don't know how to do it. We don't have a clue. And that, that it was him saying that we don't have a clue. We need to know how to do it. That made me think, you know what? I've got to focus on the how to that question because Marshall and I had massive success with how women rise. What we were doing is looking at the specific hows. So with rising together, that's what I do. First, I look at the biggest triggers that are most likely 
to get in the way of people's ability to build effective relationships across boundaries. And these triggers are often facilitated by the environment that people are working in. So this is something that we not only have individual responsibility for what triggers us, but employers can really benefit from understanding triggers that make it difficult for people to um, form relationships. For example, let me give a, 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 an example that's very simple yeah. and that people wouldn't necessarily think about, uh, which is visibility, triggers around visibility. This is common not just with gender, but across race and ethnicity. Um, women are often, and I'm just using women as a stand-in here for uh, di diverse sure. employees in yeah. general, um, reluctant to claim their achievements, shy about talking about what they did that was valuable. Why are they shy about this? On one hand, they may have had real pushback. And this is common. It was common, especially, um, you know, in the, in the 80s and 90s. You'd say something, you'd make a point, and somebody would accuse you of being arrogant, of being all about me. You're talking all the time, et cetera. You, you had just raised this point. So this is a, this is an example of something, the kind of thing that may have happened to somebody. Also, women are also hypersensitive to the fact that they are a member of a team. So when they are speaking about uh, achievement or contribution they made to a common effort, whether they're telling their employer that, whether they're telling their team head that, whether they're talking about it to a customer or client, they're, they're reluctant often to talk about why they, um, uh, what they contributed because they'll be, they're afraid they'll be perceived as taking that away from what the team did. So what will often happen then you're in a situation where you're expected to speak up about what you contributed, you sort of hem and haw, you say, well, my team really did that or something slightly lame like that. And then the employer who asked you to do that because you were doing it in a meeting, you were doing it in front of a customer or client will think, meh, you know, she's not really somebody who's comfortable. You know, that's not a leadership behavior. I thought maybe this woman would have some potential as a leader, but she seems reluctant to really talk in a direct way about what she's contributed. I guess that that's not so much. Whereas you'll get a man who's from the mainstream, from the leadership mainstream, who looks like the people who've been in leadership in this organization, and he doesn't have those inhibitions. Um, he's not concerned about taking away from the team necessarily. He has the capacity to speak very directly about what he's contributed. And then that's perceived as a leadership behavior. He's perceived of as a confident human being who has potential. Whereas that, 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 so there's a kind of trigger operating, <clears throat> excuse me, where the employer thinks, okay, I guess that's not leadership material. Um, and then, then that begins to impact how the individual is, is perceived. So what I'm trying to do in this book is, first of all, I'm trying to 
identify the most common triggers that get in the way of being able to build effective relationships. And in the context you and I are discussing, the most common triggers that make it difficult for an employer to recognize what somebody's real potential is or see them for what they they actually may have to contribute. Uh, and then I'm also presenting uh, some behaviors or ways of acting that can create a more inclusive environment. I want to hear more specifics about what some of those actions are for employers so that they can walk away from, from this show and, and start implementing things today. Um, what Some of the things that we talk about internally here uh, uh, in frequently on this show, um, when we run our businesses by especially the talent management portion of our businesses, you know, how do we, how do we find talent? How do we attract talent? How do we bring them on board? How do we engage them? How do we manage performance? How do we even offboard uh, people, whether they're leaving by their choice or, or, or ours? Um, if we manage that by gut, because I just know people and I just want to get to know my, my folks, this is when the, uh, the unconscious stuff kind of creeps in, right? But the more we can be systematic about our processes for uh, and moving all the way upstream with something as simple as a job description, right? It, 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 if, if I'm going to, uh, if, if I have a, a, a job that just says sales rep, then I'm interviewing people that I, my gut feels like align with that, right? But if I actually list the competencies required, somebody who can do this amount of prospecting, someone who has this month, these types of relationships, someone who enters, uh, who's, who's performed these specific, and I love your word, the behaviors before, now my, my screening process, my interviewing process. And if I hold those competencies through to performance management and career development, I'm managing to competencies, AKA behaviors. I'm not managing to all these other stuff. And it, and it helps to remove any bias that may or may not exist, but, but it, 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 it takes all the, takes all the filters away from whether it's women, whether it's gender-based, whether it's color-based, whether it's age-based, I'm focused on what are the skills and competencies required to be successful here. And, the, and that goes for leadership then too. What are the qualities and uh, needed to be a great leader? And when you, but the act of simply putting it on paper is just a wonderful practical tool to then not make that a criteria when you're, evaluating your own folks and then otherwise possibly looking past some great candidates. Can, can you, I'd love you if you would critique my ideas there and then what, put, put some, put some practical advice on top of that of, of some of the things that employers should be doing. Yeah. I, I love what you said. It's systematic, but it's also transparent. That's what you're putting these competencies on paper. And guess what? It's also a work in progress. That's often the the sort of stumbling block here. There are great intentions when we get some to some degree systematic. We think through, okay, what is really required to do this job? What is required in terms of past experiences? What is required in terms of the ability to get up to speed quickly 
in terms of this competency. Because again, that's where you often get um, you know, a listing of six competencies that is required. I remember doing a program once um, uh, for a large healthcare uh, organization, and we were talking about uh, the competencies listing, and um, you know that had been listed for a, a new position for an application. And one of the women said, you know, I was going to apply for that job, but there were six competencies that were listed. And I looked at them and I realized in my experience, I only had three. So I didn't apply for the job. So then a conversation came up about when you see a list of competencies, how many of them do you, do you, do you have to have in order to apply for the job? And I'm, people are asking me, I'm thinking, I don't, you know, I don't know. It's always different. And um, the this was a, a women's network. So their corporate champion stood up and he was a guy who was like head of, you know, uh, North American operations. So huge job, fairly young guy. And he stood up and he said, look, he said, the job that led me to where I am now had uh, six competencies listed. I knew I wanted that job because I thought it could lead me to the job I have now. He said, but I only had three of these competencies. So what I realized that was that my job was to be able to describe why I could get up to speed very quickly on these three competencies. Uh, he said, I did a good job with that. I got the job. It was successful and it led me here. The women in the room were floored to hear this. You mean you applied and you only had three of the competencies? So that's an important thing. Right. For an employer to keep in mind, yes, it is important to list these competencies, but also to make clear that somebody applying for a job they've never done is unlikely to have all these competencies. But someone who comes from sort of, you know, the, 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 the whatever, I'm, I'm not going to call it a white male because I do a lot of work in places like Japan and Korea, et cetera. It's hardly a white male who is de determining the culture there. Um, <laughs> you know, in the United States, it is to some degree, but not always go out to Silicon Valley, see how many white males you can find out there. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, yeah. it, people are from the subcontinent. They're from India. So it's whoever is defining the mainstream of the organization. Um, in, in a main street setting, you're going to find often more white males or a lot of, you know, black women as well. I mean, it's whoever the main, the mainstream person is. You want to be sure that you are very clear that the expectation is these are the competencies required to do the job. That does not mean you are expected to have all those competencies on day one. So that's number one. You want to be very aware of that fact that some people will see those competencies and say, oh, piece of cake. Of course I can do that. Other people will look at those competencies and say, well, you know, I've never really done this, that, or the other. And so they'll be more reluctant uh, to apply. The other thing is you want to kind of keep an open mind and um, and be willing to adapt what some of those competencies are. I worked with a relatively, it was not a huge um, mining company um, in uh, Southern Australia once, and they were having a terrible uh, problem on some of their sites with safety issues. And you know, in mining, safety is just everything. 
uh, because you, you basically lose your right. license to operate if you have serious issues. So in this company, um, they were trying to look, how can we, uh, so, so they recognized that the issue was at the supervisory level. The supervisors here were like, you know, these kind of tough old guys and it's just do it, do it, do it, you know, figure out how to do it. And that wasn't helping people. And they were feeling as if their voices were not heard. Um, sir, I believe that this could be a potential problem. Okay, fine, fix it or not. Um, you know, this is how we've always done things, you know, so you, you have to learn how to do this. So it's a kind of not a very, it wasn't a listening culture when it came to the frontline managers. And by the way, this is often where there's a stumbling block, not the senior leadership who have the certain kind of intentions, but at the supervisory level. So what they, this uh, company decided that they needed to do was they needed to find people to put in these supervisory positions who had not kind of worked their way up in the mines, but people who had a long experience dealing with safety issues and dealing with with problems on the ground that, you know, compromised people's ability to operate safely. So what they started doing was so they started listing some competencies and ideas. And what they began to do is actually hiring people who had been emergency medical technicians and things like that. So they were looking Love very that. broadly at competencies and their uh and and these people were extremely attuned to listening. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had an EMT come to your house. They're trying to get answers from you. They're trying to get answers from everyone in your family. What just happened? Give us the specifics. They need to know. So they're accustomed right. to asking the yeah. kinds of questions they need to ask in that situation. So they just changed the hiring pool and safety issues basically went away because they were looking at, they identified, okay, we've got an issue. Uh, with the competencies that we're hiring for in the supervisory, uh, in the supervisory field. So think broadly and then make it very clear that, that, you know, we're, people are smart. They develop competencies quickly on the job and give them the resources to do that too. Pair them with somebody who's very good at the job and who's a good mentor and give some instructions to that mentor. Here are a few things to look at, you know, because that mentor is going to have some, you know, some unconscious assumptions that are shaping his or her ability to be a mentor as well. So give them some guidance in terms of that. I, the, um, and then you really set up that, something. That example strong. is brilliant. I, I, that, that example is, is brilliant. I, I, I love that. Um, it, it, it gets me to thinking Thank about, I, I think, that, I think there's an easy trap that employers can fall into. You know, I, I'm the, I'm the owner of Acme Corp. I'm an XYZ industry. And so I need other people from XYZ industry. Uh, and, and I, I think that ex, quote unquote experience in the industry or experience in the, in such a similar job probably has, has, has been a, a successful proxy, if you will, for competencies because it makes the assumption that like I haven't sat down to actually think and document what those competencies are, but it's safe to assume that if they come from my industry, they've been successful somewhere else, they probably have them. But when you take the time and this is hard, I, I, I take, I take 
you know, no finger wagging at employers here. This is hard stuff. But when you really sit mm. back and define the competencies required, your talent pool changes dramatically, right? So if one of the if one of the competencies required for you, uh, and as you're given that example, it was it was it was uh, stressful situations and listening uh, uh, skills. If listening skills is one, maybe maybe a, a requirement of the job is can you multitask and handle stress, right? Well, you don't have to handle you don't have to hire somebody from within your industry, which is a talent pool of this to find other jobs that are stressful, right? If 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 one of those competencies, you know, all of a sudden your market opens up like crazy, but you don't know it until you actually write down the competencies, and then probably there's some stack ranking involved, right? Of my six, here are the three that are drop dead. You really do have to know these things and come in day one with this expertise. Otherwise, you're not going to be successful. These are three that are desirable. They're required for your long-term success. But now I'm more assessing your ability, if you don't have them, to grow into that, right? Yeah, I I really agree with that. And I, I love this idea of thinking when you're thinking about the competencies, it's not just so much the outcome. It's how the person marshals their talents and their experience in order to do that job. And that thinking this is a really important thing, especially given the tightness of today's labor markets and the willingness of people to walk right. away when they feel dissatisfied. Um, that, that, that being able to think really broadly about who might be able to do this job, what kinds of skills does, for example, a high school teacher have to have? Uh, and how might those translate um, into, into my company? How might that work? Well, a lot of organization. It's always fascinating to see how right on the curve teachers are in terms of a lot of their technology skills. They have to manage it all themselves. They don't have anybody, um, you know, who's do, who's doing that for them. They're constantly being hit with new systems, and you have to adapt to this and and learn how to do this. This is a learning curve. So there are, there are lots of professions like that where we don't necessarily think of what the what the skills are that that person might have we think well they're a teacher they're they're a nurse they're an emt in this case you know um so thinking broadly is really really important and then the other thing is it's imp- it's very important in the hiring process there to ask a person very specific questions about you know what do you think you're best at where have you had help at getting up to speed on something difficult where there's been really a good outcome? And what was the situation that created that for you? What talents do you feel that you have that uh, that you would like to use, that you would like to develop, that you have not developed on the job you had, have have had previously on the job you have now, if you're hiring away from somebody. Because this is, we miss what a big motivator this is for most people and particularly for the kind of people who have the potential to be really dedicated contributors. People want jobs that enable them to expand and test their talents. 
for the most place. And people who become sort of dissatisfied, disconnected, disengaged employees are people who feel that they don't have the opportunity to do this. Mike, I've interviewed thousands, particularly women, who have left jobs that look great on paper. Do you know what the through thread is of what they have said to me? They have said hmm. they had no idea what I could do. They had no idea what I could wow. do. If you're a small employer, that's what you don't want. You don't want to create a culture in which people feel they have no idea of what I could do. So you need to ask them what they can do, what they're not exploring, what they would like to develop and help them maybe, you know, help the job evolve to fit those talents. Because those are the most satisfying people. And by the way, those are the kinds of companies that become ever more skilled at meet at expanding uh, who they think their market is. I don't want to I don't want to miss this opportunity. I think what you just said was so powerful, but so simple. I think it would be really easy to miss it. If 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 a giant portion, half of the workforce leaves jobs and the common thread is they had no idea what I was capable of in your response to what can employers do about it? Ask them. I want the show to be practical. You yes, walk exactly. away from, at, the, at the end of this one hour conversation and, and implement these changes. It is as yeah. simple as that. So like, I, I think I naturally gravitate towards the over-engineered uh, development of competencies, mapping those competencies to our performance management and a coaching methodology and a framework. That stuff is all really cool and it's really impactful, but this, this doesn't have to be that hard. It can truly be as, as simple as talking to not just, Oh, I'm going to go after the women because maybe I think I need to uh, do a job managing women. It's all of your employees because all of them fall into their own groups, different schools, different backgrounds, different genders, different everything, tattoos, no tattoos. We're all the individuals. Simply ask them, what other skills do you have? What would you like to bring to bear, right? Are there ways that you think this job could develop? that would enable you to act on on those. Those are the human questions. And when I say that I, I've interviewed thousands of people and heard something like along these lines from them as the most common through thread, I'm also talking about people who left some of the, you know, the companies that have the most developed, the most expensive performance management assessment tools and skills, et cetera. And that the <laughs> kinds of things that most smaller businesses don't really have, um, have the budget to build. But these are companies that are like on the cover of fortune for their performance management uh, system, but it's a system. It's, and, 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 you know, systems are obviously very important. We wouldn't be here having this conversation uh, remotely. Uh, both of us from uh, places in the country, if we didn't have fantastic engineering systems, key, key, key to how things right. operate. But we also need to recognize that the human side is what really keeps people engaged. I've never heard anybody say, I stayed at that job because, oh my goodness, they had the best performance review system. I have never heard anyone say something like that. <laughs> I've heard people say, I stay right. at this job because... 
the team had is so, you know, really seems to listen to us, really seems to care about us. And I have to had had the opportunity, you know, I came to this company, you know, in, you know, in the commercial side of the uh, one of our insurance lines. And what I was able to do, because I was really good at talking to very dissatisfied customers, was come to head up a whole division in this in this insurance company that deals with dissatisfied customers. And we have developed some really interesting ways of learning from them about where we're potentially falling short. And then the leadership of the company listens to me when I talk about that, and we begin to test putting some of those things into place. How could I leave a job like this? I have grown so much in this job. Uh, a friend of mine, Bev Kay, who, who's done a lot of career development work, had a great book called uh, Help Them Grow or Watch Them Go. And I see a lot of that. You don't help people grow. You don't help them feel like, whoa, I'm, you know, I'm a little better than I thought. This job is really giving me some capacity, um, to show who I am. We want people who mirror us and who understand, um, what we have to contribute. And this is what, this is, you know, people often say, well, what is an inclusive organization anyway? You know, it sounds very fuzzy and they're afraid you're going to come out and say, let me give you my model for an inclusive culture. No, an inclusive culture is very simple. An inclusive culture is one in which the largest possible percentage of people feel ownership in the organization. And we know whether they feel ownership in the organization because if they do, they talk about we, not they. That language is what enables us to understand it. So it's really quite simple. And inclusive cultures are created by inclusive practices and inclusive behaviors. And so, you know, whatever our biases are, that's not the key thing. The key thing is the practices and behaviors that we model and that we expect at every level. That was the deal with the mining company. The leadership was very committed to creating an inclusive culture, but at the supervisory level, they had people who were, you know, sort of, it was all about their power and protecting their feet. Man, yeah. You said it so perfectly. I, lo I love that. Um, I think too often this whole DEI conversation turns into big corporate speak, uh, and it's not practical. Sometimes it tilts to the political, and it's it's. Just, I, I I I won't even attempt to say it because I couldn't say it better than than what you just did. It, at the top of our conversation, I feel like uh, I was I was trying to steer us towards. Uh, talent pool, right? So kind of above the funnel, uh, bringing employees in and, and how do we identify talent? Uh, uh, you talked about ways uh, to, uh, to to tap into new talent pools. We had a nice conversation on competencies. You're, you're, you're taking us now towards what I would say uh, retention and performance orientation, right? So uh, uh, the the data is really clear on this. You know, I, I, so many times executives uh, think that uh, the number one thing that employees want is pay. Um, you know, 
that's usually in the top five, but it's near the bottom of the top five, right? It, it is that they want to be the place where they feel they have a voice, that they're heard, that they make a difference, that they have an Im- impact, right? That they like their coworkers. These are all things that are more important to most people. There's a minimum threshold everyone requires for, for, for compensation. But what, 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 what are some of the practical things that people watching the show today can implement tomorrow to better engage their employees, to, to, to make them feel heard and not just this gratuitous way, like, Hey, I just listened to this podcast yesterday and we're all going to have a staff meeting and I'm going to ask you, you know, what, you know, how you can contribute. How, how do employers really implement this advice? Yeah, I, I think that's really important. And I'm so with you on getting away from this sort of politically charged speech or accusatory speech in which we're hunting for, you know, a, a minor infraction that we, th- we think or imagine uh, that somebody has brought to the table. It has been extremely unhelpful. Um, in terms of the immediate things we can do to keep people engaged, I think that that one of them is to when we have we don't have to call a meeting to have everybody talk about uh, things like, uh, you know, what what makes them feel satisfied and heard. But I think that it's helpful to in a meeting to be very, very um, sensitive and aware of who's talking, of who um, of calling, you know, being careful to call on people who aren't the usual suspects, who don't constantly talk about things. And then if they're stumbling or they feel uh, unsure about it, uh, to recognize, you know, that's that they haven't had as much experience uh, rather than think, hmm, thought, thought so-and-so wasn't really up to snuff. And uh, afterwards, come in and say, you know, I I, um, I called on you because I think you have such an interesting perspective on this, that, or the other. I didn't feel that you were completely comfortable sharing that. Uh, is there anything we can do that, that could help you? Also, you want to be very sensitive and aware that there are people who try to make contributions in meetings, and often they get stepped on by someone else who's more comfortable speaking up and more comfortable and, you know, not necessarily looking to take their idea or steal the credit, but may just be affirming it. But that's, that's sort of the, the, the result. So you want to be sensitive and aware of that and kind of looking at how comfortable are the people in this room at contributing. Uh, a good thing to do in terms of to create greater um, opportunities for comfort is to really, in meetings, use one of the things we've learned so well to do in the virtual era, which is to have little mini breakouts through the course of a meeting. So it's not everybody talking. You're the leader. You talk. You call on a couple people. But put people in mixed groups and say, okay, we've... Um, one of the things we're, we're, as you know, dealing with is we're trying to attract this new kind of customer. Um, Jim has just shared with us uh, some of the experiences and doing that. What I'd like to do is to have a little bit of an informal brainstorm, put you in groups of three or four and discuss, you know, how that experience in your view might have gone a little better. Uh, some things we might do in the future. Uh, or some some ways that you think would be more successful. Excuse me. 
of approaching this particular group. So use that sort of mini brainstorm. It's a way of building connections. Make sure people do that across uh, sectors and uh, groups and levels. Really helpful. Excuse me. <coughs> I'm recovering yeah. from a yeah, you clear your throat. I'll a ask virus a question. I know we're, we're, we're starting to pro we're, we're starting to approach time. I know. So a couple of topics I just want to hit on. So we, I think we talked about, you know, attracting and finding talent from from different pools. We talked about how to engage and and, and therefore retain that talent. Much of your work uh, has been around leadership development, right? In in uh, uh, you know the 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 concept of the the skills that you know got you where you are are not the skills that are going to get you where you need to go and that's really focus of your last last book um from let's let's talk about leadership development from the small business employer side of the equation right you frequently have uh an owner founder who is you know maybe was a great carpenter and now has a a uh, a, a nice business, three crews doing home and kitchen remodels. You've got a, a hairstylist who then uh, uh, found, started her own salon and now has a chain of five salons, right? So you got a lot of practitioners that are owners of small businesses. Uh, and as they kind of try to get to the next level, they they, they bump their heads up on, the, on these, now I need to actually, I, I, I can't do this where I'm the sole leader to get to the next level, I'm going to need not just skills and competencies and arms and legs. I need leadership skills. What's your coaching for entrepreneurs, small businesses to, to think about the same problem here of this inclusion and, and expanding their scope, but in, in, in de uh, developing leaders to help them get to the next level. Yeah. I think the most, one of the most helpful things I've seen people do in terms of just practical advice, you're running a business you're the founder, it's your business, it's your baby, you're very profoundly and deeply identified with it. You're not necessarily recognizing yeah. that that deep total identity you have pulls away from some of your employees' ability to be identified with the organization because the organization is essentially you. Hmm. I think the best thing you can do is huh. to make sure that you join a group of people in a similar situation and share so you can hear what some of their experiences are. So you're not the person that everything is on in that situation. They understand what your situation is because they may be in a completely different sector, but they're part of it. And I think that that kind of, of thing is really, really helpful because part of the, the difficulty of doing this, of being a small business owner, is it can feel kind of lonely. You can't suddenly start venting all your biggest concerns to your employees because you're going to scare them. You're going to think, make them think that the organization or their jobs are in jeopardy. So you need a cohort of people who are doing what you're doing. And you need to find that so that you can see, number one, a bigger picture, uh, see what people are doing 
that that is successful. You're running a business, so you're not, you know, off necessarily. I mean, you may read some books on leadership, but you're not seeing it done live. You're kind of making it up as you go along, as we all do. So you want that cohort. You want to feel embedded. You want to feel as if you have a group of people who are in that position. And I think that that's something that, um, you know, I've seen it happen wonderfully, but I've seen it lacking so often. You have the furniture, you know, company. It's it's kind of what we were talking about earlier in the show, thinking more out of the box in terms of who you might hire. Do you own the, you know, the best known furniture company in your region? That's terrific. Um, and you're doing fairly well and there, you know, people aren't buying the furniture and young people are walking in and saying, we don't like brown furniture and you don't know what that they're talking about. So you've got all these issues you're dealing with. Um, but you can learn so much from the hairdresser, from the carpenter, from the house painter who now has 15 people who are working for him or her. You can learn a lot from them. And that's where I see, especially in smaller or more rural communities, there isn't much linkage there. And this is one of the great advantages of this technology is you don't now have to drive a hundred miles in order to go to the meeting. And, um, and I think that's, that's really important. Right. If you can't find something like that, start it. That's great advice. I, I could keep talking to you for a long time. I, I'm enjoying this very much and you know, have enjoyed your work. And I'm really looking forward to your book, I think, late February. Let me let me give you a minute here to, to wrap and tell us about uh, what's in store in your new book. Sure. Uh, Rising Together, uh, How We Can Bridge Divides and Create a More Inclusive Workplace. I'm holding it up here. Uh, this is the galleys. It will be out on February 28th. We're doing pre-orders now on Amazon and Barnes and Noble. If you're interested, just go to that, uh, that site, Rising Together. And, uh, really my big hopes for this book are that it begins to change the conversation away from identifying biases and toward being specific about what kinds of behaviors actions, and ways of speaking are effective in creating a more inclusive workplace. And this is vital work because of the disengagement that is presently taking place. Well, we're going to be sure to include a link to, 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 to the pre-sale to Amazon uh, in, our, in our show notes. Thank so you. if anybody's interested, they can jump on that. Uh, I think this is so cool because... You know, you're, you're most known for helping women rise to the next level in their careers, right? And I love that you yeah. focus on the individual, not the systems and the finger wagging. It's such practical advice. In, in, and I think this is now a, 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 maybe it's not a pivot. It's really, it, it, but it's taking those same principles to employers, how to build this world of inclusivity. Uh, that's not some politically correct thing to do. It's, the war for talent is real. We're struggling to find employees. And when you find them, you better hang on to them and make this a place that they love to work and to grow and develop so that you, you never lose them. Uh, so, uh, in the, in, with that, uh, Sally, thank you so much. Really enjoyed meeting you. Really enjoyed our conversation. And for everyone else, uh, thanks for joining today. We'll talk to you next week.
At Assure, we build human capital management software and services that help 90,000 companies like yours attract, develop, and retain great people. Our low upfront costs and affordable subscription model allow you to save cash to invest in things that drive growth, not overhead. To learn more about how Assure can help you claim up to $26,000 per employee with the Employee Retention Tax Credit, automate your payroll, and build productive teams that are compliant with ever-changing HR laws, visit AssureSoftware.com.